You may not be aware, but the Somali Bantu people are historically Muslim by faith. And so we have the opportunity right here in our own backyard to show the love of Christ and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Muslim people. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, but we are going to have the opportunity to show them that He's far more than a prophet. He is the King of kings, the Word made flesh, the living Lord. He loves them, and He wants to do something profound in their lives. And by serving them in practical ways, it's opening wide doors of opportunity to share Jesus. In fact, there have been several occasions recently where, confronted by hardships, these folks, rather than asking for help from the Islamic Center here in Pittsburgh, have made their pleas for help to ACAC. So continue to pray for this ministry. It gives us a chance to do missions right here in our own backyard and here on the north side. Exciting stuff, good stuff, part of expanded influence. Now, before we look into the Word together, let me remind you that for a number of years, I have taken August as a sabbatical month, not a vacation month. Some people say, so you're gone on vacation for a month. No, I will be going on vacation for a week during the month, but it's a sabbatical month when I step away from my regular teaching duties, administrative duties, day-to-day -day duties here at the church, and just get alone with the Lord, either at home, in my office, or elsewhere, and ask the Holy Spirit, what are we to be doing next? How are we to be going about it? When are we going to be going about it? In other words, it's important that we be always seeking the leading of God's Spirit, not just doing our own thing and asking Him to bless it. And August is when I take concentrated time to just get with the Lord, quality time and quantity time, saying, Spirit, what do you want to say to us? What do I need to say to the people? So as always, I would greatly appreciate your prayers that this month of August will be a time when I will hear clearly from the Lord and discern His leading accurately. In the meantime, you'll be in good hands. Because over this next month, we've asked a variety of skilled preachers and teachers to share the Word with you, some from our own staff, some friends of this ministry like Ron Morrison from Cleveland. And then next weekend, a young man, Charles Galbraith, who I tried to get onto our staff a few years ago. But that wasn't the Lord's leading, and he's currently pastoring a wonderful Alliance congregation in Queens, New York, but he is a powerful young preacher. You'll understand why I tried to get him on our staff, but you can't get all the good ones, but we try. And uh, he'll be bringing the Word next week, so you'll have good feeding during the month of August, and then when I return, as always, I'll just share the things that I felt God laid upon my heart. And one final thing. Expanded influence is already starting to unfold, and we'll be talking more about that in September. But whenever a church arises to embrace a new thing for God, the enemy arises and brings new resistance. 
And we are starting to see that, especially in the lives of our staff. They are the first targets when the church is advancing. So without going into detail, let me simply say, please be in prayer for God's protection upon our staff, our elders, our board, our leadership, because the enemy's going to come hard at them. He's already started, but the joy of the Lord is our strength, but the prayers of God's people add to our strength. So lift us up before the Lord, and I know that you will. Well, this past week, our 91-week journey took us into the New Testament and into the Gospel of John. And so today, our teaching comes from John's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 38 through 41. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, and that was the tomb of Lazarus. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone." Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And that's my title this weekend, Remove the Stone. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come and enable me to preach and teach the truth that you revealed. Come and enable us to grasp it and apply it. We pray that for the honor of Jesus, for the expanded witness and influence of this church in our community, our city, our region, and our world. And we pray it ultimately for the sake of broken and lost people who need us to be about our Father's business of sharing the good news. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. Have you noticed there are times in life when the distance between a good thing that we desire and the odds of seeing that good thing come to pass feels for all the world like the distance between the opposite rims of the Grand Canyon. Our heart can see that thing that we passionately long for, that thing that we've been passionately praying for, but it appears to be hopelessly out of reach. The gap between what we want to see and what we're experiencing appears huge. And if that kind of scenario goes on for any length of time, disappointment moves in. And after unpacking, it opens the door to its friend, doubt. Now, in an effort to evict those two unwelcome squatters, we sometimes look ourselves in the mirror and say, but nothing is impossible for God. But have you noticed sometimes when we tell ourselves that, our words ring hollow? We're not really convincing ourselves. We're trying, but we're not really buying it. Much as we would like to, we just can't seem to believe it. And when we can't believe our own admonitions that nothing is impossible for God, we do the next best thing. 
What we human beings do so very, very well, we look for somebody to blame or something to blame. And our search usually begins with the most easily identified target, the man or the woman in the mirror. Because let's be honest, when our hopes are frustrated, when our dreams seem to be denied, it's very easy for us to believe that we're the problem. Because while our struggles and our sins are hidden to others, they're very well known to us. We know ourselves all too well. And the accuser is constantly reminding us of our failings and our past sins and our struggles. So it's very easy to assume, well, it must be me. But the search never stops with the man or the woman in the mirror. By nature, it almost always leads us to blaming others as well. We come by that naturally because we are the descendants of Adam and Eve. And when confronted with their initial sin, they immediately began the blame-shifting game. You see, it's embedded in our spiritual DNA to blame somebody else. And finally, if all else fails to bring relief, and those things always fail to bring relief, we eventually get around to blaming God Himself. Now, we generally choose our words very carefully so as not to convey disrespect or give offense, but we know we're blaming God, and we know we aren't fooling anybody, least of all God Himself. Now, today I want to look at two sisters who walked through what I just described. Their beloved brother, Lazarus, was dead and buried. And in their minds, the same tomb that held his body also held their hopes. They had hoped that Jesus would heal him, but Jesus had arrived too late to do so. So they were disappointed. They were devastated. And they both questioned and subtly blamed Jesus. They were all very respectful in doing so, but their inference was clear. But I love the fact that Jesus wasn't put off by their pain. He wasn't peeved because of their questions. And he wasn't angry because of their doubts. He knew he had a surprise in store for them. He knew he was about to teach them something very valuable, something that we all need to know. And that is that the gap between the miracle we desire and its occurrence isn't as great as we often imagine. Sometimes that gap can be bridged by one simple act of obedience. One simple act of faith that requires nothing more than our saying yes to God. In addition, those two sisters and the disciples were about to learn that God may permit a gap between the miracle we desire and its occurrence in order to expose the gaps in our faith. Now, this story begins with a devastating combination, death and delay. Lazarus' sudden death had left his sisters to wrestle with grief. 
And Jesus' surprising delay had left them to wrestle with doubt. And to make matters worse, they they knew the whole sad scenario could have been avoided. Jesus could have healed Lazarus if he had just hustled at the news of his dear friend's sickness and gotten there sooner. Instead, he took his own sweet time. Now, why in heaven's name would he do that? Now, you and I know if we're thinking something in our mind and in our heart, it ultimately finds its way between our lips. It shows up in our speech. An old preacher used to say, it's out of the well of the heart that we pull up the bucket of speech. And so what Mary and Martha were feeling showed up in their initial greeting to Jesus. They they couldn't wait to say, Jesus, how are you? What's up? How's things shaken? What's been going on? No, they went right for it. Both of them greeted him in the same manner. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They were just waiting to say that. And again, their words were respectful. They called him Lord. They expressed confidence in his power to heal. But they also conveyed disappointment. If you had been here. Now, Mary and Martha weren't aware of what Jesus had said earlier to his disciples when he had first received word of Lazarus' illness and his condition. But if you read it this week, you know what he had said to the disciples wouldn't have helped Mary and Martha feel better about things. Quite the contrary. Because to jog your memory, here's what he said upon learning of Lazarus' condition. He told his disciples, this sickness isn't unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then he later added, I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there so that you may believe. Now, I suspect both of those statements left his disciples scratching their heads. What do you mean this is so God will be glorified, so that the Son of God will be glorified? And and what do you mean? You're glad you weren't there so that we might believe. Jesus, in case you haven't noticed, we left everything to follow you. We are the believers. You know, I, I rather suspect those disciples were glad Jesus hadn't said those things to Mary and Martha. And I don't think they felt obligated to share them (laughs) because they would have felt that only make matters worse. Lord, I'm not going to tell them he's glad he didn't get here on time. But the sisters and the disciples were about to learn something. God often discloses great blessings in words that initially sound like anything but blessed. Words like, He that loses his life for my sake will find it. Words like, blessed are you when men persecute you and do all manner of evil against you. Words like, I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there so that you might believe. Sometimes God's blessings are announced with words that sound like warnings rather than blessings. 
And in this case, it serves to remind us that God desires more for us than a miracle that brings relief. He desires the intimacy with us that brings restoration. Now, that's a critical point, so I'm going to ask you to read it with me, will you? God desires more for us than a miracle that brings relief. He desires the intimacy with us that brings restoration. Because the benefits of intimacy with God remain long, long, long after the benefits of a miracle fade. After all, Lazarus would be raised to life, but he would die. He's not still with us. Those who are miraculously healed can get sick again, and they all ultimately die because it's appointed unto man once to die. Miracles are rather short in their shelf life, but intimacy with God, that's a permanent thing that leads to our ongoing restoration. But here's the thing. Before you can be intimate with God, you need a revelation of God as He truly is, not as you wish Him to be, not as somebody else portrays Him, but as He really is. And the word that Scripture uses for seeing God as He really is, is glory. Many times we read that term, glorify the Lord, the glory of the Lord, and we file it under the category of the mysterious. It's anything but mysterious. Simply put, God's glory is what you see when you see Him as He truly is. God wants you to see Him as He is. Again, not as society would portray Him, not as some in the church would portray Him, not as you wish He were, not as you think He is, but God wants you to see Him as He really is. And when you see Him as He really is, what you're seeing is His glory. And conversely, when the church through its life and teaching portrays God as He really is, that church is glorifying the Lord. See, there's much more packed into that word glorify than just sing together, praise together. No, it's being trustworthy with God's reputation, showing the world what He's really like, repeating what He really said, showing the world what He's really up to. That's glorifying the Lord. Now, Mary and Martha already knew Jesus, but they knew Him as a friend. They knew Him as a teacher. They knew Him as a healer. They knew Him as a miracle worker. They knew Him as Lord, but there's more to Jesus than that. They and the disciples needed to see that He was also the resurrection and the life and that He had ultimate power over death. Then and only then would they be seeing all of His glory. That's why Jesus said, I've permitted Lazarus to die so that I might be glorified. I'm going to give you guys a chance to see what I'm really capable of and who I really am, because that's the thing you need to know more than anything else in life. So His delay was intended to nudge them towards His glory so that they could turn around and glorify Him. Now, when you see the glory of the Lord, that sets the stage for something else. Intimacy with God sets the stage for self-discovery. 
Because when you see God as He really is, you begin to see yourself as you really are. In fact, if I could come at that from a different angle, if you are not intimate with God, you'll be left in the dark where your own identity is concerned. If you don't know Him, you'll never know yourself. You'll never know yourself. Your identity will be formed, your self-image will be formed by your own thoughts. And then you'll have an identity that exists nowhere outside of your own mind. Or your identity will be formed by the lies of culture. Or your identity will be formed by the lies of the world. Or by the lies and accusations of the enemy. This is why so many people who experience abuse in their youth struggle to find the joy of the Lord is their strength because when they're abused at an early impressionable age, the enemy rushes in and said, this happened to you because you're a bad person. And then they embrace that identity and they live down to that label the rest of their life until Jesus sets them free. If you're got to know who you are, you have to first know who God is. Not who culture says He is, who God says He is. Otherwise, you've set the stage for a whole host of disappointments. Remember, when the Word says the truth will set you free, that truth includes the truth about yourself. If you're going to reach your potential in Jesus, you need to identify the barriers that stand in the way of your reaching your potential, but that's not even enough. You need to remove those barriers, the barriers to you being all that God wants you to be, and the biggest barrier to you being all that God wants you to be is your own lingering unbelief. Now, toward that end, Jesus visited the tomb, and He gave this command, remove the stone. Why? Because before Jesus does what only He can do, He often asks us, His followers, to do what we can do. God often says, I'll do what only I can do, but first I'm going to ask you to do what you can do. Only He could raise Lazarus from the dead, but they were capable of removing the stone. It would take some effort, but it was doable. But did you notice immediately upon giving that command, Jesus discovered unbelief in the two sisters. It was self-discovery time. They were on their way to learning something about the glory of God and learning something about themselves. Martha said, Lord, that's not a good idea. The smell would choke a horse. That's a loose translation, but that's what she was saying. Now, her objection affirmed two things. First, even real faith is subject to dark hours. In fact, I would wager to say real faith will always face some dark hours. To have faith is to sometimes wrestle to hold on to your faith. And secondly, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, unbelief always has its reasons and frequently has a big but. One T, but it is a play on words. See, unbelief always has an explanation as to why it wouldn't be good to do what Jesus commands. 
Martha's was, it's been four days, it'll smell to high heaven. But unbelief always has some explanation, some justification, and unbelief always ends its sentences with the word but. Lord, I know you're powerful, but. Lord, I know you promised, but. Lord, I know you care, but. Lord, I know the word says, but. Lord, I know you did it for them, but. Unbelief always has a big but. A dear pastor friend in this area that has gone on to be with the Lord shared with me a rather humorous story. He was working at the altar at Mahaffey Camp. It's a Christian campground. That's where I was last weekend. It serves our Alliance churches in western Pennsylvania. And after the service, he was counseling a woman at the altar, and her difficulty was she just couldn't believe that Jesus had actually saved her. We call it a struggle with assurance. She just couldn't get assurance that she was saved. Well, his name was Don, and Pastor Don, every time she said, I, I don't think I got it, I don't think I'm saved, I'm not feeling this, he would give her a scripture. He who began a good work in you, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If anybody calls on me, I will not cast them out. And after every verse, she would say, I know Pastor Don, but, and then she'd give more excuses. I know Pastor Don, but. I know Pastor Don, but. And finally, in his exasperation, he looked at her and he said, Sister, that's the problem. That big butt of yours keeps getting in the way. <laughs> as soon as the words were out of his mouth, he knew. Oh, the <laughs> And she was off. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't want any more advice from that pastor. But you see, our big but does get in the way. Lord, I know you, but. Lord, I believe you've spoken, but. No, 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 no. Faith doesn't put but at the end of the sentence. And in this case, Jesus wasn't having any of it. He knew the real issue wasn't the stink. It wasn't the smell of Lazarus' body. It was the smallness of his followers' faith. So he responded, didn't I say, if you believe? So they removed the stone. Now, once they removed the stone, you know the rest of the story, Jesus called Lazarus by name because he was in a graveyard. If he had just said, come forth, he would have emptied the whole place. He was just looking for one guy. And when he came out, he was bound up in the grave clothes. So once again, Jesus called upon his followers to do what they could do. He said, unwrap him and let him go. He was a party waiting to happen, but they needed to unwrap him. This isn't our focus, but I've always found that to be a beautiful picture of what goes on inside the congregation. Jesus miraculously raises us to new life, but then we help one another get untied from all the baggage we brought in with us from the kingdom so that we can get our party going. That's what discipleship's about. That's what challenge is about. That's what rebuke is about. That's what comfort's about. That's what counseling is about. Getting the grave clothes off so that we can dance. So here's the point of the story. Jesus is more than capable of turning your need or your dream into a testimony, but before he does, you may need to remove a stone. You may need to remove a stone. 
Now, we've learned that as a congregation here. Before God could raise us up to new, vibrant life and effectiveness, we had to identify stones and remove them. Stones of unbelief, stones formed in unbelief, stones sustained by unbelief. We had to remove our bigotry, our pride over the past, our fear of change, our fear of the Holy Spirit, our love of tradition, our reliance upon human capability. And as we removed those stones, God called this congregation back to new, vibrant life. So I ask, is there a stone that you need to remove before God's promises can be fulfilled in your life? It may be as simple as an apology you need to make, a forgiveness you need to extend, a bitter root you need to pull up, an honest confession you need to make, an addiction that you need to reveal and address in the light of day, a break from some unwise or ill-chosen relationship destined to lead to ruin, the ending of some inappropriate flirtation, the release of your resources for the kingdom of God. Many times, the gap between where we want to be and where we are is not great. It's no bigger than one stone. The stone God points out to us and calls us to remove. And if you'll remove it, you'll discover that when we act, God will react. And I don't want you to think that God's in the extortion business. Removing the stone doesn't mean you're meeting the demands of a God who is reluctant to bless you. No, He's eager to bless you. Removing the stones means you're denying your own unbelief that restricts you. And that's why he says, that needs removed. That needs removed. Did I not say, if you believe? So the gap between where you are and where you want to be in Christ, while it may look like the width of the Grand Canyon, it's not. God will never put you in a position like that. It's probably just one stone away. The old famed preacher F.B. Meyer put it this way, unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. You see, unbelief put death between Lazarus and his sisters, but faith put Jesus between Lazarus and death, but not until they removed the stone. So let's take a moment and in quietness you erect an altar in your own heart and ask the Lord, Lord, is there a stone that I need to remove in my life that only I can remove? A stone that is standing between where I want to be and where you're calling me, where I am currently. A stone that stands between the miracle I need and the need that calls for that miracle. Lord, show me that stone. Give me the faith to remove it by my obedience. You talk to him for a moment, and then I'll close this.
Gracious Heavenly Father, many times the thing that our heart desires because of a desire birthed by your Spirit seems hopelessly far away, and yet in reality it may be just one stone away. My prayer is that you would help each of us identify any stone that we need to remove so that your intended blessing might flow to us and through us. Lord, we pray and we say we believe, but help our unbelief and help us to diminish our unbelief by removing our stones. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.